Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Well, shalom everyone. I'd like to welcome you all out to another Tuesday evening Bible study entitled Exegeting Galatians. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunava, that's in Thornton, Colorado. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started with our study tonight. Avino Malkino, our Father, our King, Lord, we are grateful. We are so thankful that you are drawing us unto yourself. Lord, we know that it is by your Spirit that we can enjoy the fellowship with you that you have designed for us to enjoy. We know that it is because of the finished work of Messiah that uh, you have brought us, you have repaired the uh, breach, you have brought us into a right relationship with you, and you are taking us further into the program that you have in store for us. Indeed, Lord, as we march our way through um, counting of the Omer, as we have uh, uh as we're working our way from Passover to Pentecost, we bless you, Father. We say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. You have sanctified us by your commandments, and you have uh, commanded us concerning the counting of the Omer. Lord, in fact, Shavuot, Pentecost, is right around the corner. It is this coming weekend, and we are excited, we are jazzed that we can meet with you, because this is an important day on your calendar. We are, we are um, um, thrilled that you have decided to include us in your appointments, in your special days. Indeed, this is the commemoration of the, the Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, but it's also... The commemoration of Matan Ruach, the giving of the Spirit, the outpoured Spirit that we read about in Acts. So Lord, help us to remind ourselves that it is by your Word and by your Spirit that we are drawing close to you, that we are becoming a more mature people of God, that we are uh, becoming stronger in our faith, and that we are demonstrating that Jew and Gentile together are in fact one new man, as as um, spoken about in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for this time that we can come together, that we can sit and uh, learn of one another, um, that we can uh, strengthen one another with encouraging words, that we can gather around your promises. Thank you for the book of Galatians, and we thank you that the Holy Spirit superintended Paul's writing, uh, for we know indeed that the uh, words are relevant for us. They are relevant for us. Bless each and every student who has come out tonight. I pray that you'll um, give them uh, ears to hear, give them eyes to see uh, the truths in the text. 
Father, I pray that you'll um, give me grace and mercy as I work my way through the commentary that I've written. I thank you for the opportunity, and I pray that you'll continue to um, give me the uh, the uh, open doors in order to speak uh, what I feel that you've put on my heart. Uh, continue to be with us as a people, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Okay, well, uh, for all of you who have been following along with this commentary, um, just want to remind you of some of the logistics, just briefly, and then we'll just jump into some liturgy and jump into the study. I don't think I'll be before you long tonight, since I don't have a lot to speak on, but we are in week 30, and if you'll recall, this study is designed around a 10-week-on, 2-week-off semester-type schedule. So, we're at the end of a semester, week 30, which means next week we will not be meeting, and the timing of that is just uncanny. The last every time we've got had a semester break, we've we've uh, actually had a, a festival during the break. Uh, last time I think it was Purim. So this time, um, today is uh, if I date stamp this recording, it's June seventh, two thousand sixteen. For most of you, it's actually June eighth, two thousand sixteen, on my part of the world. But um, June seventh and next week. Uh, our next meeting will be um, June 28th, so we're going to miss the 14th and we'll miss the 21st. But, as I mentioned, Shavuot is this weekend, uh, the 11th and 12th, depending on how you're counting your Omer. Um, I'm, I'm going to be observing it on the, uh, the evening of the 11th, um, not going into the 11th, but uh, what we might call a, a Saturday night, because that's Erev Shavuot. And then Pentecost Sunday is how most of us are going to be observing the day. So I encourage you to, uh, if you don't attend a, a Messianic congregation and you're not able to, say, meet with others and celebrate uh, Pentecost or Shavuot, I mean, after all, if you're a Christian and you're listening to this commentary, it is, after all, quote-unquote, the church's birthday, right? We'll play with that saying a little later. Nevertheless, um, I encourage you, go back and read, say, Acts chapter 10 and meditate on that. And then also read Exodus chapter, say, 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, uh, the Asrat Hadvrim. Um, go back and read that as well. And uh, just mine all the nuggets that are there for you. Let the Holy Spirit lead you and be your guide. I'm not going to tell you exactly how to read the scriptures and what you should be gleaning from, but just ask God to show you what he wants to show you. Amen? Amen. All right, let me open with some liturgy um, tonight. I'm going to uh, switch the liturgy up a little bit, just like I did last week. I'm not going to read a, a passage out of the uh, Tanakh and a passage out of the Apostolic Scriptures. Instead, since this topic is a little unusual for my Galatian study, it's, it really kind of functions as an excursus to the Galatian study. Therefore, the, the liturgy kind of follows suit. Instead, I'll just read the, 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 what we call the Birchat HaTorah, which is the blessing for the Torah. I'm just pulling this straight out of my Arch Scroll Siddur Sephardic version. And um, I'll read the English on page 19, and then I'll jump over into the Hebrew as well. And then I'm not going to actually read any New Testament passage, since the uh, commentary that we're reading, the section that we're reading tonight, has enough Greek words thrown in there um, that, that it'll fulfill our, um, our Greek quota for tonight. So, let me just read this blessing for you. It's just uh, one, two, three, four short paragraphs, uh, two of which are um, uh, passages taken straight out of the Torah, or uh, one out of the Torah and one out of the, out of the Mishnah. 
It reads, Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Hashem, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offspring's offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Hashem, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. I think I'll jump over and read the Hebrew now, and then I'll just continue with the English. The Hebrew of that same passage reads, the next paragraph reads, Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave us His Torah. Blessed are you, Hashem, giver of the Torah. And if you've ever attended a Messianic congregation, you'll know that that particular um, uh, paragraph itself is chanted if you have uh, a chazan, someone who can chant it from your congregation. The tune uh, would read something like this, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher bachar banu mekol ha'amim v'natan lanu et torato Baruch ata Adonai noten ha'torah Amen. So the Hebrews, And this next paragraph is actually taken from the book of Numbers. It's chapter 6, verses 22 through 27, which also is chanted probably maybe near the end of your service if you attend a Messianic congregation. It's the Aaronic Benediction. And... Um, I think I will chant it for you since I'm treating this semester break as kind of a special since we're right on the heels of um, Shavuot, so I'm making my liturgy just a little special tonight. And Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, So shall you bless the children of Israel, saying to them, May Hashem bless you and safeguard you. May Hashem illuminate his countenance for you and be gracious to you. May Hashem turn his countenance to you and establish peace for you. Let them place my name upon the children of Israel, and I shall bless them. The Hebrew reads, and then I'll chant it for you after I read it. Vayidaber Adonai el Moshe lemor, daber el Aharon ve'el benayv lemor, kol tivahu et b'nei Yisrael, amor lahem, ivelechacha Yahweh v'yishmerach, ayer Yahweh panay v'elecha v'chunecha, yise Yahweh panay v'elecha, and the chanting would go, you know what, I think I'll save the chanting. I'll save the chanting till the end of the class. How's that? Um, and the last paragraph is actually Mishnaic Hebrew. Um, actually, I don't think this is Mishnaic Hebrew. This might be Babylonian Hebrew. But it is from the Mishnah. It is from Tractate Peah, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And it reads, These are the precepts that have no prescribed measure, the corner of a field which must be left for the poor, the first fruit offering, the pilgrimage, acts of kindness, 
and Torah study. In the past, I think I've said that this was um, Aramaic, um, which would sound very similar. But nevertheless, here's what it reads in Hebrew, I believe. Elu hadrim she'en lehem shi'ur ha'piyav ha'bikurim v'har'yun u'gmilut chasadim v'talmud Torah. Amen. And that'll be our liturgy from the uh, Hebrew selection this evening. So if you are with me in the live class, look at your screen and you'll see that I have got um, <laughs> I've got a screen pulled up and basically we're going to read through Acts chapter 10. And this is David Stern, CJB. Let me jump, drop my font down just a little bit. No, we want it right there. We're going to just read through Acts chapter 10 since it is a short chapter and since we don't have a lot of time um, or we don't have a lot of material to cover in the commentary, I thought it, would, might, it might be nice to just get the uh, context of what we're going to be talking about anyway. We did read this last week, and for those of you who've been following the commentary and you're wondering where this fits in with the Galatians notes, um, uh, my primer is this. My, 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 um, my supposition is that in the book of Acts, um, God was actually showing Peter a vision in order to get him to understand the nature of the um, scope of the gospel going out from the locus of Judaism and towards the people groups, the surrounding nations. And because of the blindness of ethnocentric uh, Jewish exclusivism or the blindness of nationalism in the first century, um, blindness that Paul writes about in the book of Galatians, because of the limited scope of covenant membership that the Jewish people held onto in the first century, it was necessary for God to send a vision to Peter that would help him to understand that it is that God doesn't play favorites, that God doesn't have prerequisites in um, people groups or ethnicity in order to bring one into the parameters of the covenant and within the scope of the gospel itself. Thus, the vision that's given to us in Acts chapter 10 isn't really designed to teach Peter that the dietary laws are being done away with. Rather, my understanding is that the vision is given by God to explain to Peter that the, um, that the gospel is open to everyone who would place their faith in Yeshua. And so, without getting ahead of myself, let me read through David Stern's version. And there's a reason why I'm reading David Stern's version as opposed to an, an, another English translation. I'll tell you why after I read it. But let me read this for you. Starting in verse 1, There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a Roman officer in what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man, a God-fearer, as was his whole household. He gave generously to help the Jewish poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon around three o'clock he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at the angel, terrified. What is it, sir? he asked. Your prayers, replied the angel, and your acts of charity have gone up into God's presence so that he has you on his mind. Now send some men to Yafo to bring back a man named Shimon, also called Kepha, He's staying with Shimon the leather tanner, who has a house by the sea. As the angel that had spoken to him went away, Cornelius called two of his household slaves and one of his military aides, who was a godly man. He explained everything to them and sent, to ya sent them to Yafo. The next day about noon, while they were still on their way and approaching the city, Kepha went up onto the roof house to pray. 
He began to feel hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing the meal, he fell into a trance, in which he saw heaven opened and something that looked like a large sheep being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals, crawling creatures, and wild birds. Then a voice came to him. Get up, Kepha, slaughter and eat. But Kepha said, No, sir, absolutely not. I've never eaten food that was unclean or treif. The food spoke of uh, the, f- the food. Wow, that was a typo. The voice spoke to him a second time. Stop treating as unclean what God has made clean. This happened three times. Then the sheet was immediately taken back up into heaven. Kepha was still puzzling over the meaning of the vision he had seen when the men Cornelius had sent, having inquired for Shimon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask if the Shimon known as Kepha was staying there. While Kepha's mind was still on the vision. The spirit said, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and have no misgivings about them, with, about going with them, because I myself had sent them. So Kepha went down and said to the men, you're looking for me? Here I am. What brings you here? They answered, Cornelius. He's a Roman army officer, an upright man and a God-fearer, a man highly regarded by the whole Jewish nation. And he was told by a holy angel to have you come to his house and listen to what you have to say. So Kepha invited them to be his guests. The next day he got up and went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Yafo. And he arrived at Caesarea the day after that. Cornelius was expecting them. He'd already gathered together his relatives and close friends. As Kepha entered the house, Cornelius met with him. I'm sorry, Cornelius met him and fell prostrate at his feet. But Kepha pulled him to his feet and said, Stand up. I myself am just a man. As he talked with him, Kepha went inside and found many people gathered. He said to them, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. So when I summoned, I came without raising any questions. Tell me then, why did you send for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, around this time, I was at Mincha prayers in my house when suddenly a man in shining clothes stood in front of me and said, God has heard your prayers and remembered your acts of charity. Now, send to Yafu and ask for Shimon, known as Kepha. He's staying in the house of Shimon, a leather tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, all of us are here in the presence of God to hear everything the Lord has ordered you to say. Then Kepha addressed them, I now understand that God does not play favorites, but that whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him no matter what people he belongs to. Here is the message that he sent to the sons of Israel, announcing shalom through Yeshua the Messiah, who is Lord of everything. You know what has been going on throughout Yehuda, starting from the Galil after the immersion of that Yochanan proclaimed, how God anointed Yeshua from Nazareth with the Ruach Kodesh and with power, how Yeshua went about doing good and healing all the people oppressed by the adversary because God was with him. As for us, we are witnesses of everything he did, both in the Judean countryside but uh, and in Yerushalayim. They did away with him, by hanging him on a stake, God raised him up on the third day and let him be seen. Not by all the people, but by witnesses God had previously chosen, that is, by us, who ate and drank with him after he had risen again from the dead. 
Then he commanded us to proclaim and attest to the Jewish people that this man has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And all the prophets bear witness to him that everyone who puts his trust in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Kepha was still saying these things when the Ruach HaKodesh fell on all who were hearing the message. All the believers from the circumcision faction who had accompanied Kepha were amazed that the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh was being poured out on the Goyim, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Kepha's response was, Is anyone prepared to prohibit these people from being immersed in water? After all, they have all, after all, they have received the Ruach HaKodesh just as we did. And the last verse, And he ordered that they be immersed in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Then they asked Kepha to stay on with them for a few days. Amen. Alright. So, <clears throat> um, basically, we have a narrative of um, some strange events. And let's turn to my commentary and see if I can plug what we just read into our study on the book of Galatians. Those of you who are with me in the live class, you'll see that I basically got the um, commentary pulled up where we left off last week. We are near the bottom of page 55. What we did is we just finished reading from 10 different English translations one particular verse. And the verse that we're singling out is um, Acts 10.28. And... Um, Basically, uh, we're looking at this particular verse in ten different versions. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want to highlight a few of the words that show up in the Greek. Um, so we read out of the New American Standard, the God's Word translation, the KJV, the ASV, and a few of the other versions. And what we're learning is that there's a certain phrase that shows up in every one of these versions and it's this phrase, athematos, in the Greek. The original Greek word is athematos. Um, if I were to actually pull up the original Greek, which, if you're with me in the class, I've just got um, biblehub.com pulled up, since it will allow me to see the uh, the Greek and the English and a wooden translation, as well as the um, uh, the morphology of the uh, the parsings, where where we have the the you know the part of speech and the uh, the uh, the, you know, like if the word is a, um, what tense it's in, what mood it's in, what voice it's in, things like that, which I don't need to get that technical, but if we just look at verse 28, um, we see it says, um, the wooden translation reads something like, he said moreover to them, you know how unlawful it is for a man, a Jew, to unite himself or to come near to a Gentile. To me, however, God has shown not common or unclean to call man, Right? That's the verse in question. Uh, the Greek reads, Ephete pros autus humas epistathe hos atematon estin andri eudaiu kolasthai e pros erkesthai. What do we got? Alafuso kamoi ho theos edexin medina. Quinon a akatharton, I'm sorry, akatharton, legan anthropon. And the verse, I, or the word I want to highlight for our study is, if you're with me in the class, you'll see it's this word right there. It's athematon, which um, we, we're going to look at that word. So, uh, let's jump back over to my commentary and pick up the reading near the bottom of page 55. 
Isn't it interesting that from ten English translations, that all but three of the ten that I chose render our Greek word aphematos, which is the original Greek word, they render it as unlawful. The GWT, God's Word Translation, the BBE, the Basic Bible in English, and the WEY, the Weymouth Translation, they all render this word as, um, I'm sorry, all the, the, all the other seven render this word, athematos, as unlawful. However, those three attempt a slightly different nuance uh, rather than unlawful to this word, an attempt that I actually call commendable because they don't say unlawful. Even the scriptures, which is a version that's very popular among Messianics, leaves room for questioning the real intent of the translators. Here's what I mean. Let's read the, word, the, the same verse in the uh, Scriptures version. It reads, quote, And he said to them, You know that a Yehudite man is not allowed to associate with or go to one of another race, but Elohim has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So, um, where am I going with focusing on this one word, the Sathematos? I, I actually caution building an entire theology on one word or you know one passage i think it's poor exegesis to build your entire theology so i i hope you guys don't misunderstand that i'm not i'm not trying to build my entire theology on one word or one verse however what i am trying to show is that whenever translators have to go from the original receptor language into a um a translation then they they often have to pull from not only a pool of words but a nuance of of a single word and so you know no single word in any language means one and only one thing rather there are nuances shades of meaning to every word that you're going to find including the original greek and so it is with this particular word tuathematos it's rendered unlawful by most of the english translations however the, the question I would immediately ask of the text is, is it unlawful by God's standard, or is it unlawful by man's standard? And that's the distinction I'm trying to make. Because if, according to Peter, it's unlawful by God's standard, then Peter is breaking God's law by associating with Gentiles. See the point I'm trying to make? However, if it's not unlawful by God's standard, but it's only unlawful by man's standard, well then, perhaps it's okay for Peter to upset the social apple cart and go against the standards of man in order to accomplish the purposes of God. You see my point? And when we're reading through this passage, if we don't know whether or not it's against God's law versus man's law, then we might come to the incorrect conclusion that perhaps Peter is trying to do away with God's law. And in fact, that is the popular Christian position. So let's keep reading my commentary and you'll see where I flesh this out. We're at the bottom of page 56, uh, I'm sorry, the top of page 56, and the commentary is only uh, one and a half pages left, so that's why I mentioned we might not have a lot of, uh, we might not spend a lot of time on this tonight. Top of page 56, the Greek word athematos, found in only two places in the apostolic scriptures, is a composite of two Greek words, the word tithemi, meaning to set, put, place, set forth, establish, and again, we have the, uh, of the uh, alpha privative, which is the article A in Greek, rendering the word tithemi into its negative value. Look at the two footnotes. Footnote number 42 shows uh, that the two places that, that um, athematos is found in the Apostolic Scriptures is actually, they're both spoken by Peter. We have Acts 10.28, 
which the which is the, which is the verse we're studying right now. And then we also have First Peter four three, where he also uses the word athematos again. And um, uh, the definitions that I'm using for that I'm pulled into my commentary actually come from the TSBD, which is Thayer's and Smith's Bible Dictionary, uh, for the word. Uh, um, I have a cathartos a there, but I think that should be a, a thematos. Uh, so I think that's a typo. But um, basically, uh, reading my commentary, a thematos does convey the notion of unlawful, just like the translators say. So I don't want you to hear me saying that the translators are wrong. So if, you, if your translation says unlawful, that's fine. That, that's, that's how we should translate the word. But we have to understand context. What's the context of the unlawful? And that's what I'm trying to, to uh, highlight tonight. Thus, the thematos does convey the notion of unlawful, but we should carefully note, in my opinion, that if Kepha wanted to us to understand that such a prohibition was rooted in the written word of God, that is, it was unlawful according to the Torah, then I imagine that he would have used the conjugation of the Greek word namas, which normally refers to God's Torah. Right? Now, I, this is just my assumption. I don't know what Peter actually said that day. I don't know if he was speaking Greek, Aramaic, or Hebrew. It's I, my suspicion is that he was probably speaking um, Aramaic, which was probably the the more common tongue uh, in the first century. Uh, Hebrew being reserved uh, probably for synagogue and Torah study, and then Greek was being used in the outlying areas. But this was in I think this was close enough to Jerusalem that he was probably speaking Aramaic. Nevertheless, Luke, being the writer records the story for us in Greek, and that is what has been preserved for us by the Spirit of God. So the Greek has become authoritative as well. It is inspired. So, we have a thematos. <laughs> but I suppose, I assume that if he wanted to convey, if Peter wanted to convey that this was against the written word of God, then perhaps Luke would have been inspired by the Holy Spirit not to write a thematos, but something akin to anamos. So, Anamas actually shows up in Acts 2.23. It's rendered wicked in the KJV and godless in the NASB. And when it refers to those men who crucified Yeshua, I think that's a proper way to render the word Anamas as wicked. But if you can see, wicked and unlawful are can be um, synonymous terms as well. The TSBD defines the adjective Anamas uh, that Luke does use in Acts as, quote, destitute of the Mosaic law, departing from the law, a violator of the law, lawless or wicked, end quote. So notice there that if Luke wanted to convey lawless according to the Torah, then perhaps Luke could have used anamas instead of having the word athematos filled in there. By comparison, the adjective athematos refers to that which, although not written down, is simply socially unacceptable, viz. taboo, but certainly not proscribed by Mosaic law. You understand the difference? So, I'm actually picking on the words this time, and I'm going to say that David Stern's complete Jewish Bible, which is the one I read the entire passage from tonight, I think his CJB is actually a better translation of this pasuk, of this verse. What does David Stern's version read? He said to them, you are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. 
And the phrase I have underlined there, something that just isn't done, that's our Greek for, uh, phrase, athematos, or if we were to look at it in the original, it's uh, athematon. And um, this is the point I'm trying to make without belaboring it. The point I'm trying to make is, as students of the Word of God, whenever we hear some about something being unlawful or whatever we read about a, a, a reference to something out of the Torah, we really should stop and do our homework first. Is this really in the Torah? Is this really against the Torah? Is this really prescribed by Torah? Is it proscribed by Torah? So for Peter to say to the Gentiles there, you're well aware that for a man who's a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another nation, people, or to come and visit him, is something that's against the Torah. If that's what Peter was saying to them, well then, I'm sorry, but Peter's wrong. You see my point? I'm going to challenge Peter there. If that's what Peter was saying, if that's what Peter was implying, and I don't think Peter was completely ignorant of what the Torah teaches. In fact, we don't have to be ignorant of it as well. We can go back and read God's word for ourselves because we have all of it available for us. And so we know that it is not unlawful, according to the Torah, for Jews to mingle with Gentiles. But germane to our study, and it's germane to the book of Galatians, and that's why I'm highlighting it for us in this particular section, germane to our study is the truth that within the first century there was this social taboo going on when it comes to Jews and Gentiles uh, having close association with one another. And that is the primary point I'm trying to highlight in this text. Peter was, was, Peter was avoiding Gentiles because of the Jewish social taboo, because of, of the uh, Jewish uh, suspicions that were leveled against Gentiles, because of the... Um, um, the common practice of religious Jews to try and steer clear of becoming ritually contaminated, so to say, by Gentiles who were thought to be unclean. And that's the whole point of the vision. God is basically trying to explain to Peter that, look, Gentiles don't have to be looked on with suspect. So let's keep reading my commentary, and I think you're going to get the gist of this. The Torah of Moshe never prohibits Jews from keeping company or coming unto one of another nation. I'm using the exact same verbiage that Kepha used there. Right? This statement of Kepha's reflects the ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism baggage that the Torah communities of his day had engineered. Baggage not uncommon among people groups who are marginalized. Right? You, you've seen this before. Whenever you have a people group who gets shoved off to the side by the larger people group, so you've got the smaller group being shoved off to the side by the larger group, and in this case, Rome was the larger group and the Jews were the smaller group who were being marginalized. And whenever you find that happening socially, you can find this happening anywhere in the world. Whenever you find this happening, essentially you'll find the 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 um the self defining of the two groups the kind of the the lines of demarcation that get thrown up uh instantly uh between the two groups the smaller group kind of pulls himself into a huddle to protect themselves cuz cuz that's the measure of social protection that they uh, react with right and so in their reaction against the larger group then they uh, uh, they end up um, defining an, an us versus them, an us versus them, a, cl a cliquish kind of social um, uh, um, animosity develops between the two groups. And who's in and who's out language starts getting thrown around. And essentially, 
it, it becomes a we don't hang out with them and they don't hang out with us type of atmosphere. And often it, can, it, it can become heated and hostile if, if people try to cross those social boundaries. You understand what I'm saying? And so this is what's going on in the first century. We have the Jews versus everyone else. And the Jews were seen as the elect of God, the special chosen covenant people group of God who were exclusively in possession of Torah, who exclusively who had an exclusive audience with God, an exclusive um, experience with the Spirit, and were exclusive covenant members. And thus we had this whole um, nationalism, or the limited uh, perspective on Torah that we read about, where uh, covenantal nomism was essentially driving the whole program. And we talked about covenantal nomism a few weeks back, so go back and listen to the other podcasts if you're unsure. So, in other words, Kiefel was just regurgitating the standard mantra of his day when he said that that, that uh, Jews and Gentiles coming together, it's, just, it's, not, it's something that shouldn't be done. And that's why I challenged the translation that says it's unlawful, because if, if as a Bible student, I don't, if, if, if I as a Bible student just assume that unlawful means that it's against the Torah, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to interpret Peter's, Peter's phrase here, uh, where he says, but God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean, where we know that Peter breaks with some law and decides to keep company with the Gentiles. We know that he does that. And if we assume, as a Bible student, that it's against the Torah to do so, then we basically have Peter, Not number one, he's violating Torah, but number two, it feeds right into the traditional Christian uh, interpretation of his passage that the vision is God explaining that the law's been done away with. See my point? And that's a viewpoint that I'm also going to challenge. So, um, Peter's just regurgitating the standard mantra of his day where Jews and Gentiles shouldn't be doing this. Not against the law to do it, but something that, the, from a social perspective, it was frowned upon. This did not excuse his error, in my opinion, which is why Hashem went through all the trouble to send on the vision in the first place. Just keep reading my commentary. In the end, considering how the written word of God describes forbidden and permissible foods, and considering the core nature of the gospel as revealed to Abraham, the father of those faithful Jews and Gentiles who are in Messiah, recall Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3, the message of the Acts 10 vision is actually crystal clear. And let's read this, okay? Certain forbidden animals of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 11 are declaratively unclean. Akathartos. Corresponding Hebrew is Tameh. So, according to, our, uh, according to what I feel is a better understanding of this passage and of the vision, we first start with affirming that the animals listed in Leviticus 11 and 14, Deuteronomy 14 are, have not changed. What God calls clean is still clean. What God calls unclean is still unclean. And thus, as I write, they should not be eaten by covenant members because Hashem says not to eat them. Right? God declares them off limits. That's what I mean by declaratively unclean. The Torah never hints at a time when such a declaration would be reversed by divine decree or such, which is really the traditional understanding of the Axton vision. Let me pause and interject just before I um, revise this piece in my commentary, which is actually a revision that's less than 24 hours old, by the way. If you've got this commentary and you printed it out, or you're even, um, if you've uh, received the uh, Galatians notes that I send out to the enrolled students, you'll notice that um, 
this last paragraph has actually been rewritten because there was some verbiage in there that's that kind of suggested that I didn't believe in original sin, and so I needed to reword it. But the point I want to highlight is that um, before I was uh, putting together this final version that we're reading, that we're studying tonight, I decided to go back and revisit a bunch of um, traditional Christian commentaries on Acts chapter 10, such as uh, Matthew Henry's commentary, uh, uh, what is it... um, uh, is it James Gill? I can't remember. Um, but about a handful of well-known Christian commentaries. And essentially, across the board, um, the, the traditional prevailing Christian interpretation of Acts 10 is that the vision pertains to, to two things. It pertains to food, and it pertains to people. And the, the part that pertains to food is that God is actually bring the, the, the era of the law to an end. In other words, to use dispensational language. The dispensation of law has come to an end, and the vision is God's divine decree to Peter that um, no longer call unclean what God... Uh, don't consider the animals as unclean anymore. And that's essentially the uh, one of the primary ways that this passage is being interpreted by Christian exegetes. Of course, I differ. I differ with that. Strongly differ, actually. I don't think that God is bringing the uh, the dietary issues to an end. I don't think that he even needs to bring that point out. I think that the vision is a vision, and the animals are symbols. And the symbols represent the people groups of all the world. That's why we have all manner of animals on the sheet, because there's all manner of people groups, all manner of what we call ethnicities in the earth today. People of different national origins is the point I'm trying to make. And God gives the vision so that Peter can make the connection. And we know that Peter makes the connection because Peter gives us that interpretation later on in the passage. So let's just finish reading this commentary that I've written, and then I'll maybe um, expand expand, uh, uh, my understanding of it a bit. These, uh, let me back up one one, uh, sentence. The Torah never hints at a time when such a declaration would be reversed by divine decree or such. Uh, the traditional understanding of the Acts 10 vision. However, those loyal to covenant faithfulness need not worry because the vision was never about food in the first place. It was about people. Those Gentiles from the nations that God was bringing into remnant Israel via faith in Yeshua are not intrinsically and thus irredeemably unclean, which is the Greek word akathardos again. They weren't, they weren't this way like the first century Judaisms were professing. Rather, Jews should not avoid them merely because they are Gentiles by birth and remain Gentiles in Yeshua. They, like all men, have been created in God's image, and as such should be viewed as defiled, that's koinos, by the stain of sin, yet in need of cleansing, katharizo, by the blood of Yeshua. End quote. So, that's essentially what I wanted to say in the written commentary. Let me just go back and make a couple of observations before I um, draw this particular part of the commentary close. If I go back to um, David Stern's version of the of the passage, um, and I, I'm I'm um, I'm purporting that uh, I'm saying that that Peter's interpretation is the best interpretation of this passage. We can see this if we look at a few of the uh, statements of Peter, for instance. Um, if we look at uh, the verse that we already looked at, verse 28, you're well aware that for a man who's a Jew, um, to have closely association with someone who belongs to another or 
comes to, another people have come and visit with something that Justin has done. Look at the last statement. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. If this were really about food, then Peter would have said in verse 28, but God has shown me not to call any animal common or unclean. See my point? Last week I also talked about how the fact that Peter uses two dual adjectives in his de, in his um, descriptions of food. He says common and unclean. And it is true that in the Greek there are two different Greek words, koinos and akathartos. Koinos is how we render the English word common, and akathartos is how we render the English, uh, is rendered into the English as unclean. And it is true that um, koinos is a word that is generally describing man man's declaration of something that's off limits or man's declaration of something that's not permitted uh, not permissible to be eaten because it has become common which is uh uh sometimes described as unclean but the other word unclean the uh, the akathartos is definitely most likely <laughs> A, um, a reference to what God has declared unclean. So the point I would would make, it's not a strong point, but it, it, it is a point worth noting, is that when Peter says, I've never eaten anything common or clean, let me give you an example. If I were to take an apple, which is clean by biblical standards, if I were to take an apple and take a bite out of it, and then accidentally drop it on the ground, and it rolled around in the dirt, if I were to pick it up, and try to eat it again, I might be, I might have some um, reservation about taking a bite, because in my opinion, the apple has become common. See what I mean? It's become soiled. That which is normally permissible by biblical standards has suddenly become common by contact with the dirt on the ground. Or, to use a more maybe a, an example that's closer to home to the to our commentary. Let's suppose um, uh, the apple, uh, I pick up, the, I, I, I pack an apple for lunch, and so when I took it from my house, it was clean, it was washed, everything was ready. I put it in a plastic baggie, and I took it to work with me. And I get to work, and I set it, take it out of the plastic baggie, and I put it on my desk, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to eat it in a bit, but my coworker comes up to me, and the first thing he does is he sneezes and sniffles and explains to me that he has a cold. And I'm thinking, well, why are you even at work? But I guess he's used up all six days, sick days, so he doesn't have any, any um, time to off anymore. But he coughs and sneezes into his hands. And then he looks down at my desk and he says, oh, you brought me an apple. He picks up the apple and rolls it around in his hands as if he's going to eat it. And then he says, mm, no, I guess this is yours. And he sets it back down on the desk. And then he walks away. So stop and ask yourself, do you think I would eat that apple? <laughs> Not without washing it again. Now, what's wrong with the apple? Well, before he picked it up, it was fine. But you see, by him touching the apple, the apple became common. So I would say that the apple became koinos. So um, that's one of the ways to, to understand possibly Peter's um, uh, designation here, co common. When he says, I've never eaten common or unclean, he could be referring to biblically permissible food according to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. So, for instance, chicken or lamb or meat, uh, beef, that is. So, those are all permissible food items according to God's uh, standards. But the minute that food came in contact with a person who was known to be unclean in a state of ritual uncleanliness, ritual unclean, ritual impurity, then, according to uh, most 
definitions, then the animal, I'm sorry, the food itself became tainted because it was it was handled by everyone, which is really what the Greek word koinos is trying to imply. It was it's it became handled by more than one person, particularly it became handled by people who were in a state of ritual impurity. So when Peter says I've never eaten anything common or unclean, the un the common part is otherwise permissible food that became um defiled by man's standards. So in the case of in the example of my apple, I declared it off limits. And in the case of Peter and my example with the meat, perhaps Peter declares it off limits be, even though it was originally allowable or permissible by God's standard. That's what we would call koinos. And then the other adjective, unclean, which is a kathartos, is actually God's biblical definition of that which is not permissible, i.e. pork, shrimp, and lobster, and other um, animals that are uh, off the eating list in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. See my point? So, it's a side issue, it's a smaller issue, it's actually a not even really the main issue in this particular chapter. But it's worth noting because um, Peter mentions both of them. And then it's interesting that um, if we scroll back up into the passage, uh, when Peter says, I've never eaten anything common or unclean, right? he uses both of those definitions. It's interesting that God says in verse 15, in response to Peter saying, I've never eaten anything common or unclean, koinos or akathartos. It's interesting that, that the voice spoke to him saying, stop treating as unclean, koinos, that which God has made clean. So it's interesting that if I could get technical, the voice actually only addresses one of those adjectives. The voice doesn't say, stop treating as common or unclean, that which God has made clean. See my point? So we could we could build a case on that. We could say that, if God were getting nitpicky with the words, God would, if I could fill in the blanks, God would basically say to Peter, <clears throat> stop treating food that's common as common and stop treating food that's unclean as unclean. I've cleansed them both. I've cleansed both the common food and the unclean food. If I were to fill in the gaps. But that's not really what the voice says. The voice simply says, stop treating as unclean and the, ver the word unclean there is actually koinos. Stop treating as unclean that which God has made clean. So let's look over at the Greek for a split second because I want to make sure I'm catching something. Let's go back up. If you're in the class with me tonight, you'll see I've got the Bible Hub, Bible Hub uh, Greek interlinear pulled up in front of me again. And I'm just going to scroll up to verse 14 and 15 so we can check something. Moreover, Peter said, In no way, Lord, for never have I eaten anything common or anything. Koinon kai akatharton. So we see common is koinon, which is the root, the root word is koinos. And unclean, uh, akatharton, which is the root word is uh, akathartos. But then in verse 15, And a voice came again for the second time to him, saying, What God hath cleansed, cleansed, and the root word for cleansed there is uh, kathairo, kathaira. Kathairos, uh, I believe. Let me just double click on it and see. Click on it once. Katharizo, um, which is how it's uh, parged, but the original word is Katharos. Strong's number 2511 is Katharizo, uh, but the root word is 2513. So, um, uh, what God hath cleansed, God hath made clean, you are not the call. And then the voice, or God says, Koinu which is how it's parsed, but the original re Greek word for uh, koinu is actually koinos. 
Right, so we got Strong's 2840 is koin, is the original root word. So here's the point I'm trying to make. <clears throat> Without belaboring the point, God says, I mean, if, if we were to interpret this along standard traditional Christian lines, we would say a voice came again for the second time to him, what God hath cleansed, you are not to call common or unclean. Silence. Yeah, that's right. Silence, because that's not what God says. God doesn't say, I've cleansed that which is common and clean. God simply says, don't call it common. So, like I said, not a very strong point, but uh, definitely something worth considering. That that the voice doesn't even mention the things that are um, unclean, but rather only focuses on the things that are common. And if we if we take that and carry it back over into what the vision really means, then essentially Peter is calling people common and unclean. So let's let's stop and think about this for a moment. Think about this. In my example, common, which is koinos, the Greek word, common is something which is otherwise permissible, but has become declared by man as not permissible because of contact with something else. Something something that is otherwise allowable has become un, uh, has become common because of um, contact with something that was not allowable. And then, the, by comparison, that which is unclean, which is our Greek word, akathartos, is something that is never allowable. It was never allowable from the beginning. So, you see my point? Now, watch this. Watch this. If we actually understand what the vision really means, which is about people, and Peter says, I've never anything anything common or unclean, which is koinos and akathartos, then if this is really about people... <clears throat> If this is really about people, then a Jew, from Peter's perspective, is someone who is common if he becomes unclean, if he becomes um, if he comes in contact with someone who's ritually impure, he becomes common. But a Gentile is someone who is unclean, a kathartos. So let me just use the Greek terms for a moment. From Peter's perspective as an ethnocentric Jew in his day, someone who, who is still um uh operating under the uh the suspicions that gentiles should be avoided <clears throat> from peter's perspective we could easily see how gentiles are koinos i'm sorry how jews are koinos but how gentiles are akathartos see how that works jews can be cleansed as long as they take a mikvah a ritual bath a um immersion they can go from a state of unclean or common to a state of ritually pure. They can go from a state of ritually impure, which is common, to a state of ritually pure, which is um, cleansed. But from their perspective, Gentiles, because of, because of the fact that they were Gentiles, because of the fact that they were outside of the covenant, because of the fact that they were born as Gentiles, because of their ethnicity, they were always unclean. They were a kathartos in the eyes of the Jews. And that is where we're going to get a lot of mileage when it comes to um, understanding the vision more accurately as it pertains to not only um, the way God is trying to explain it to them, to Peter, but also as it fits in with the book of Galatians. We already know that Paul in the book of Galatians challenges Peter in, Ac in uh, Galatians chapter 2 when uh, Peter... Uh, which is interesting because if you if you place the book of Galatians after the book of Acts, like I do, after at least this particular chapter in the book of Acts, like I do, then it's interesting that Peter's already shown this vision, and yet in Acts chapter two he's still playing the part of an ethnocentric Jew by by eating with Gentiles, and then when the Jews from James show up, Peter withdraws 
his table fellowship from those Gentiles. And why does he withdraw table fellowship from those Gentiles? In Galatians chapter 2, around verse 15 and so, 14, 15, 16, he withdraws because they're Gentiles. So, in other words, to use the same language of the vision that we're studying here, Peter in Galatians chapter 2 withdraws table fellowship from the Gentiles because he treats the Gentiles as, as a cathartos. He treats them as unclean. Even though God told them, told Peter, they're not a cathartos. At the very least, they're koinos. But that doesn't matter anyway because I'm cleansing them, even though they are koinos. Every person can become koinos when it comes to being stained with sin. And from God's perspective, that's not a problem because the blood of Yeshua can cleanse the status of koinos. It can wash that status away. Just like the mikvah waters can take a person who's koinos and make him um, katharizo again, can make him clean. You guys see my point? So I think that actually the two passages fit together rather nicely. And that's why we have to understand that when Peter gets rebuked by Paul, Peter is being rebuked not because Peter's waffling between keeping kosher and not keeping kosher. I think that's a, a weak um, way to interpret the Galatians 2, 14, 15 passages. Rather, Peter is being rebuked by Peter by Paul because of the centrality of the gospel that Peter should already know about. Peter has already been given this vision by God, and Peter already demonstrates his knowledge and understanding of the fact that Jews and Gentiles are equal in God's sight as long as they are within the blood of Yeshua. They are now equal, and even though both are stained by sin, koinos, even though both are common in God's sight because of the stain of sin, God can and does by his Ruch HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit, cleanse them, katharizo, and bring them into a right standing relationship with himself via his via the blood of his son Yeshua. And therefore, it's not proper from a Jewish perspective, from a Jewish nationalistic perspective, to view the Gentiles as suspect koinos. That's the whole point of the vision, and that's really the rebuke that Peter gets from Paul, you know, we're not justified by our nationalistic views on Torah. We're not brought into right relationship with God because of our limited understanding of covenantal nomism. We are not made justified in God's sight because of works of the law. And that's what we learn about. And that's what we studied about in Galatians 2, 15 and 16. And in my understanding, Galatians 2 and 15 and 16 fit in nicely with our exegesis of this particular part of Acts chapter 10. Wouldn't you agree? I hope you agree. All right, with that, um, I think I will call this, um, I'll call it uh, quits as far as the, um, the study on Acts chapter 10. Uh, I invite you all to join me each week, every Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time for our study in the book of Galatians. Next week, when we start with week 31, which again, we are not meeting next week, and we're not meeting the week after, rather. The next time we meet will be June 28th, and uh, when we meet, that'll be week 31, and our topic, we're going to start talking about under the law. Under the law. Yeah, you've heard it. You've heard this phrase, works of law, and you've heard the phrase under the law, and in traditional Christian exegesis, they basically mean the same thing. But, as is um, usual to, for me, I disagree. So, uh, join me in two weeks and we'll start looking at this phrase under the law. Let me dismiss in prayer, and then for those of you who are in the live class with me, who are with me in Skype, um, 
after I dismiss in prayer, then I'll ask you to unmute your microphones, and then we can have a little discussion about what we talked about. Okay, let's pray. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our, clean, our King, Lord, we thank you that you are uh, with us. We know that you have um, brought us to this place for this reason. We know that you are raising us up as a people of God, as a unified people of God, Jews and Gentiles who rally around the banner of Yeshua. Jews and Gentiles who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who have been made clean, katerizo, by the blood of Yeshua the Messiah. No longer do we have to worry about the designation of, of unclean, of common. We are no longer unclean, for in Messiah you have cleansed us. And we thank you. We thank you because this type of cleansing is an eternal cleansing. It's a lasting one. It's not one that... Is uh, that is only good for one night and that we have to go through over and over again like the ritual washings that we read about in the Torah. Rather, this is one that is done at the heavenly level. And so we thank you, we thank you. Bless you, Lord, for allowing us to uh, meet together once again. I pray that you'll be with each and every student that has joined me tonight. I pray that you'll continue to reveal truth to them. Lord, I know that I don't have all the answers, and so I pray that you will give them the voice to speak, the opportunity to share the insights that they are learning from the scriptures, and that they will share them boldly with anyone who will listen. For indeed, we are to build one another up until we all come into the perfect knowledge of Yeshua. Lord, I pray that we will continue to come together as people groups, as, as Jews and Gentiles. I pray that this will be uh, an open opportunity uh, for uh, well-meaning Christians and well-meaning um, Messianics to join together and to discuss these topics. Lord, thank you once again for um, Passover and for the counting of the Omer and the fact that at uh, Pentecost, which is right around the corner, that Pentecost is linked by the, the accounting of the Omer. That without Passover, there is no Pentecost. And without Pentecost, there is no Passover. We know that the two are joined together. Because in Passover, you set us free in Jesus. And at Pentecost, you were filling us with the Spirit of Jesus. And we thank you, Father, for these two great truths. Bless you, Lord, for all that you're doing in and among us. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written 
produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>